1: and you wake up so scared, as soon as you wake up in the morning, you're like, I've got all these goals and they're big audacious goals and I'm terrified I'm not gonna make them. Because if I don't make them, it's gonna impact my identity, it's gonna hurt my investors, whatever it is. So you're scared. Then once you meet those goals, the most natural reaction for people is to say, I don't need to be scared anymore. I used to be scared, but now I met my goals, so let's, let's calm down. And it's like, it's a treat for yourself. Like, now you made it, now here comes the reward, you can relax now. Now that you're relaxed, you get rid of what made you successful.
0: You're so right. You were successful
1: because you were paranoid. Yes. Once you get rid of that, not only do you lose what made you successful, but now that you wake up happy and cozy and under a warm blanket, all your other competitors who are scared and hungry are going to start chipping away at it.
0: Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I am so excited that you are here. Thank you. Me too. Most guests are pitched to me. Yeah. You are someone that great. I pursue. Oh, that's, that's a so, good signal. Yeah, so I'm, a good signal. I am really, really pumped. Because it's,
1: it's obvious when you go on a podcast yeah. and the host is, this not direct, this direct, but the first question is, who are you? Right. So <laughs> tell like, us
0: about yourself. Okay, I'll start. Let right. start from the beginning. Right. So that's great. Thank you. So yeah, I'm I'm really excited. And I was excited originally because I had read Psychology of Money and I thought, oh, that is such a fantastic conversation for my audience who are women, who are not to say the women aren't fantastic with money, but just my audience in particular, sure. maybe has a little bit of a hard time kind of taking ownership of her knowledge and and being okay with what she doesn't know and kind of learning yep. what she can. And I love that book because it really broke it down and made it so accessible. Uh, honest to God, like it helped me oh. psychologically so much. Oh, I, I really, I was like, this, you're like Nostradamus with the timing <laughs> of this book.
1: Good. good. Okay. Because
0: I feel like I'm just like jumping into all the, the good bits right here at the top. But like I have had a lot of anxiety in the last six months. especially Like particularly when AI started to become a yeah. thing where I was like the world's burning down.
1: What's going to happen next? Right. Mm-hmm. And
0: then when I literally I saw the cover of your book and I was like, Oh my God, this is genius.
1: Oh, good, so I loved good. it.
0: I read the whole thing. Thank you. That Freaking. makes me feel so
1: good. So the book is not out yet, as you, oh, and, I, not, as okay. you and I said, It okay, comes out good. a week from today. Some of the early reviews, a, a grand total of maybe six people have read it outside right. of my core group of friends. Right. And a lot of the early reviewers don't like it.
0: Really? And
1: you can't please everybody. Yeah, of And course. there's almost a sense of like, if a book is average and normal, that's what you don't want. I want right. people to think it's a weird right. book because then you have a fighting chance of sticking out. Wait, but I do that, have this kind of like anxiety. Yeah. as we, So it, it means the world to me when you say that.
0: But what's the what's the rationale or what are people- Exact
1: like? same as psychology and money, what the people early on said, which was, it's just a scattershot of random essays. And my my view was like, yes, that's the, that's I the point. I love that. That's the point. Everybody knows that most nonfiction books are too long you don't need seventy thousand words to explain one the topic. They establish
0: in the first two chapters, yes. and they just keep repeating themselves. Exactly, over and, and over.
1: everyone, even the good books that you like, after chapter four, you're like, okay, I yeah, get it. I got I it. it. I got the point. And so, to me, the only way to f- combat that was to say, I'm going to have a connecting theme: the yes. psychology of money, things that never change. Once I establish that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cover a billion different things. Yeah. And if you want to start on chapter seven, that's right. fine because you're not going to. Every chapter lives on its own is about its own separate topic. And to me, that's the only way to combat rambling. Not only are the chapters individual like that, but the chapters are very short. Yes. Extremely short. Yes. And that too was, that's not laziness, that's respect for the reader. Right. I want to make my point and get out of your yeah, way.
0: Yeah, and it's also, I think, essential because we're all so freaking busy, Like as a mama, I got four kids, but I need to be able to pick that up in the morning while I'm having coffee, or I'm going to read it a little bit before I go to bed at night. I don't have the luxury of sitting down for four hours and like devouring a book. So I- I loved everything about Good, it. Thank you. That, and that I'm not blowing to smoke up your ass. Uh,
1: uh, lots of book snobs and book reviewers, though, view that as oh, it's not a real book. Oh, well. It's a random collection of short essays.
0: Uh, well, those people have for sure never actually written a book. So True. we'll take their opinion with a grain of What's salt. What's
1: astounding to me, too, is that as a reader, not as a writer, as a reader, that's what I want.
0: Exactly. And
1: so I don't understand why some publishers and editors and reviewers look down upon. It. Right. I'm like, have you ever talked to a reader before? Have you ever read a book yourself right, before? Right. This is what people want. Well,
0: people want something to say, yeah. but my like big, uh, all the things, I, I loved it. Thank you. And I felt like it was exactly what I needed at the time that I needed it. Right. I'll sort of give you kind of my last six months. And then I would love for you to take the audience on what's where the impetus for this book came from. Right. But I, I don't know, I I, I don't know, I feel like a grandpa or something saying this, but there was something about AI really, I know it's been around forever, but really coming into the mainstream chat GPT, all of this stuff was happening and we're bombarded by everything that's going on in the world that I was like, is this all burning down? Mm -hmm. And I am an optimist. I I really am an optimist. I I believe that tomorrow can be better than today. But for the first time in my adult life, I'm kind of like, oh my God, what is happening? And my 16, almost 17-year-old son, we we got into a really long conversation about AI and what is possible and what could be. And he came to me the next morning and he was like, Mom, what's the point of doing anything? Like, if robots could take over the yeah. world, like, what's the point of it? And I was like, oh my gosh, buddy, like, don't have, uh, people have thought stuff like that a million times. Meanwhile, in my heart, I'm like, I don't know. What is the point of anything? And then this book is like, it's like the kind of thing, and I hope you take this as the greatest compliment <laughs> that your wise grandfather would tell you. Great, that like
1: I do. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: And it really calmed me down. Like it was like, oh my, yes, exactly. So I'm gonna stop gushing because I sound like a weirdo. No, let's
1: let's just do that. The yeah, whole episode, the whole <laughs>
0: interview. But will you tell us like where did the impetus for this idea come from?
1: Yeah. So I've been a financial writer for my entire career, 17 years. I write about, it used to be about just the stock market, and then it was about the economy. And, now, and then it turned into, I want to write what's just going through people's heads. How are they thinking about greed and fear and social status, those kind of topics? In, in my career as a financial writer, I really realized, and it bothered me, how bad we were at forecasting. What's the stock market going to do next? What's the economy going to do next? Nobody has any idea. Right. The smartest people on Wall Street, the people with the PhDs from Harvard, nobody has a clue. And it's been like that forever. 100 years ago, nobody had a clue. Today, they have no clue. And so there's two things you can do with that observation. You can become a a cynic and just say, nobody knows anything. Don't even try. Who cares? Like, why even try? Or you can say, okay, well, if we don't know what's going to change, can we at least focus on what's not going to change? The behaviors that never change. And a lot of this was, I've always been a big history buff. I love reading about Um, And not even like the big events, just what were ordinary people thinking a hundred years ago? I've always been interested in that. And there's so many times when you're reading about history, whether it is a thousand years ago or 50 years ago, and you read what people are thinking, what they were doing, and you stop and say, that's exactly what they're doing today. If you change the dates in this, it would fit in 2023. No problem. So then you realize, look, the people change, the set changes, but it's the same movie played over and over and over again particularly in financial crises or new technologies like you mentioned AI obviously the technology changes but what you just said about AI and what your son was saying about AI like why like why even bother the world's changing so much is almost identical to what people said when the airplane came out the car came out the railroads came out the when the internet came out when you and I were, were growing up and it's the same thing it's the same movie over and over again right. so then it's like okay if we know that's that's always been the case, then if we have some vision of the future, let's spend all of our time focusing on what we know is not going to change. Yeah. So that's where the idea came from. And then it was once I had enough little stories and anecdotes to try to keep you entertained as a a reader, it was like, all right, I'm going to put this together. I
0: am curious as a writer, I wondered this a lot reading the book, how you gather your anecdotes and your stories. Because as you're saying it, I realized, oh, that's probably why I loved it so much because I am a history nerd. Mm -hmm. And I love that you're weaving in – this is what this person was doing. This is some guy you've never heard of in like rural Arkansas in the 40s. Like it's so, are you like writing those down on your phone as you go through life or where are you finding that information? The answer to that
1: question is yes. But the life as a writer to me is 99% reading. And it took me a long time to convince my wife that when I'm sitting on the couch in my sweatpants with a book, I'm working. I'm working very hard. Leave me alone. This is a busy day for me. Yeah. Because that's what it, that's all it is. You spend all of your time reading And for me, it's always this little nugget in my head of how can what I just read apply to something that I could write about? How does this little anecdote from the Civil War, from the Great Depression, how can I use that little story to weave it into a story about how people are behaving today? Yeah. And once you have that seed in your head, you see it everywhere. It doesn't matter what you're reading about. You can read a chemistry textbook and be like, oh, that process reminds me. Of something that I've seen in the modern world and how systems work and whatnot, it's you start connecting the dots all over the place.
0: It's so funny because as a writer, I do that, but it the difference is it's lived experiences. It's, yeah. it's watching someone in line at the grocery store. It's how someone throws a fit when they're trying to get into traffic. I'm taking those real life moments yep. and con- and I'll I'll make notes in my phone, like remember the crazy lady at the gym, yes. so that I can write about that oh, later. So that's,
1: that's perfect. And. Lots of that is you realize how interconnected the world is Yeah. because the crazy lady at the gym reminds you of this other thing that you were thinking about. And I think a big problem with modern education is that it silos fields. Math is over here. Science is over here. History is over there. When in reality, like, they're all interconnected. So true. They all relate to each other. So you can learn so much about money from studying the crazy lady at the gym or the civil war or chemistry or politics. Like they're, they're all fall under this umbrella of like, How do people respond to greed, fear, risk, uncertainty, social status, insecurity? They all fall under that umbrella. And it's really bad if you're talking about money, if you're a professional money manager or financial advisor, and you are only thinking and learning through the lens of a finance textbook or an economics textbook, you're missing 99% of what's relevant to your field. And so much of what's relevant to your field, you can learn about through the crazy lady at the gym. Right. That's the relevant stuff. That's actually going to move the needle. So once you take that multidisciplinary view of the world, no matter what your field is, I I just think like so many things become clear and clarify. And you start connecting all these dots about how interconnected the world is.
0: Well, it's like that it's the oldest expression or the oldest thought in the world is that history repeats itself. Or I heard someone say, um, history doesn't repeat itself. It it rhymes. Yep, that was Mark you Twain. Know, yeah, yeah. Yep. So I'm like, I heard some. I heard Mark Twain. You were ha- hanging out with Mark. I heard then, someone yeah. then <laughs> quoting Mark Twain. That concept to me, I don't know. It just makes me feel so much calmer. Yeah. Because you're right, and not only are you right, but you give so many examples in the book. Of you'll tell a story about something that's happening in modern, and then you're like, here's ten times that happened in the past, over and over again. But when we're living the experience, it feels like it is only happening to us. Yes. So, for example, after COVID, I heard so many – there were so many memes and things on the internet about different generations and what they had lived through. And the generation that, let's say, you're in your early 20s right now, they were recounting, like, we've gone through this and this and this and now COVID and how intense that was for them. And we all feel very – attached to our own lived experience and yeah. the perspective that happens inside of that. But then you look at if you were a hundred today, what you have lived through in the last hundred years. My gosh, yeah. It's wild. Yes. And respectfully, it is much more intense than maybe what you've lived through in the last yeah. 20.
1: Yeah. There's several documentaries and books that focus on centenarians who've lived over 100 years and what they've experienced. So you think a centenarian today would be born in at 1923 or earlier. So they grew up during the Great Depression, World War II. They've seen everything. And then you compare that to myself or you. And like what what we have experienced is so limited. One of the criticisms that I thought was like actually decent criticism of psychology of money is people would say, Hey, you wrote it through the lens of a college educated white American male. And if you are an Indian female, if you're a female reading it in India, a lot of those things don't map. And I would, I would first say like, yes, great criticism, but B, I think that's unavoidable because I am a white American male and nothing is more persuasive to you than what you've experienced firsthand. You can read about other people's experiences and what it was like for other people today or people in the past, but nothing makes more sense to you than what you've experienced. And it's true for me, it's true for you, it's true for everybody. And since you and I are one of 8 billion people on the planet, there are roughly 8 billion other ways to live, like other experiences in life. And everyone, including myself, can say like the fundamental thing that happened to them during their childhood, whether it was an event or just how they were raised, that influences who they are today. Yeah, And of course, in your childhood, it's all out of your control. Where you were born, when you were born, who your parents were, completely out of your control. So as adults, we want to think like we have free will to come up with our own ideas and to analyze the world, you know, independently. And like, by and large, I think you don't. I think a lot of it is you were shaped by events and people in your life that we're out of your control. There's not much you can do for it. Yeah. And so therefore, a lot of times, it, this is much easier said than done, but a lot of times when I come across somebody who I really disagree with, doesn't matter the topic. I just, they say something, I'm like, oh, I can't disagree with that more. The correct way to respond to that, at least in your own head, is to think, what have you experienced that I have not? And if I experienced what you have, would I think the same thing that you do?
0: That's good.
1: Very hard to act, easier said than done. But the few times I think I'm getting better at this and things like politics and whatnot don't bother me as much as they used to, because rather than just like shaking my fist at other people, it's like, look, if I grew up in your shoes, I might think the exact same thing and vice versa. You might think what I do if you grew up.
0: Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. how many examples, every single chapter is its own story and its own perspective on different things that are very easy to think are unique to us or our experience. But you were talking about your childhood, which made me remember how you start the book. Yeah, And such a vulnerable story and such a beautiful story. And I really thought as I was reading it, oh, it must be going in another direction because... You can't possibly start with this, <laughs> this hard truth. Yeah. But I your perspective on it, and I don't want to like reveal it because I feel like it's such a beautiful story in the book, but your perspective on loss yep. and a near-death experience for mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes was so unique because we often I thought you were gonna say, like, because I'm such a hippie and I'm so spiritual. I would tell that story and I would say, I had this instinct that I shouldn't go. I you know, I was guided in a different direction. I was this, that, and the other thing. And you're like, it just-
1: Just random chance.
0: Just random chance.
1: The, the, I, I, it, I, it, I didn't even think about it. This near-death experience that I had, the fact that I avoided it was a decision in my head that was, it was not a decision. It was just completely dumb luck. And when you're honest with yourself about those moments, and I think most people have had one of those moments where you look back and say, gosh, if I had done- X, Y, and Z, either I would I maybe I would have died or I would not have met my spouse. I would not have gotten right. this job, whatever it is. And you realize how fragile the world is. That, and even at like the big broad level, how much of a society today is shaped by little know-nothing decisions that people made sometimes hundreds of years ago that completely transform how the world works today. And you know. There's a great psychologist named Daniel Kahneman uh, who just made a couple of shocking examples where he is like, there was a moment when Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong, and several other people, when they were in their mother's womb, they could have they could have been born a a a, a girl, they could have been miscarried, whatever it would that would have utterly shaped all of history. If you take out three or four people, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, if you take, just remove those three people from society over the last 100 years everything about today's world is completely different for you and me and everybody so then you realize just how like again how fragile it is
0: i mean that's where the book starts is you talking about how like life can change that fast that we go through these moments and these experiences where if you took a left turn versus a right turn everything could be so different yeah and in your experience you didn't go with your best friends they were killed and you are still here yep. is is the story that we're talking about how does that shape you cuz you were how old when that 17. happened 17 17 yep. Was that something that you were able to even process or hold space for at 17? Or is that something that you have unpacked as an adult? Definitely
1: at the time was not able to process it. My kids today are four and eight. And one of the things that you are told as a parent's very good advice is a lot of time when the child is melting down or whatever they're doing, they don't have the emotional tools to handle what they're dealing with in the moment. It's not that they're making a decision to melt down. They just don't have the tools in their brain to do it. And I think at 17, I didn't have the emotional tools to, to comprehend loss. And so I dealt with it by kind of ignorance. One of the things, I, I didn't write this in the book, but I, I, as I thought about it, I remembered I didn't go to my friend's funerals.
0: Really? Because
1: I think I just, it was easier for me. I just, I couldn't handle what it was at the time. And I was not ignorant of it. I'm sure that day of their funeral, I probably sat in bed and cried. It was not like I was ignoring it, but I just, I think I just couldn't, couldn't wrap my head around what was going on at the time. So it really wasn't until I was, I think in my thirties, like, you know, a decade or more after that, that I started piecing together how it impacted me. And the other thing, I don't know if I wrote this in the book, but my childhood was borderline perfect. And so at 17, to lose my breast, it was the first bad thing that had ever happened to me. And so that it had more of a punch. I think people who've who've gone through a lot of shit in their childhood, when they deal with something as an adult, it's not that it's less painful, but maybe they have more tools to deal with it. And I had zero, my toolbox was empty at that point to deal with any kind of setback. So I think for that and looking back at it as an adult, the other thing, I think I really started thinking about it as I became a father and we were 17 at the time. And when we were 17, you think that you are an adult. You think you're a man. And I look back and I'm like, oh, we were kids. We were children at the time. And so that has a bigger impact on me. And I can more relate to what their parents went through in a way that at the time I I couldn't. Of course, I just couldn't comprehend what that would be like. So I think there's a lot of things in life where – it takes decades to look back and really understand what it meant to you at the time. Yeah. And I also think that th- this, uh, I, I've written about before about, I think most of my life I've been a rule follower. And like, I think ab- about risk a lot. Fasten your seatbelt, go the speed limit and whatnot. And I think at least some of that was shaped by that experience of losing my friends. Of like, once you realize how fragile the world can be, you start, you you put your helmet on and you and you fasten your seatbelt and you're like, I don't, I don't want to take... And sometimes I hear stories about people who just take crazy risks in their personal life. And it's a sport that they do rock climbers
0: any documentary kayakers, about rock climbers be. in the last 5 years? Exactly. Yeah.
1: That part of me really respects them and admires them for living that kind of life and part of me is like what the hell are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. This can like this can and will turn around so quickly.
0: I always cuz I have lived through unfortunately a lot of hard things and yeah. trauma and when I see those experiences, I since I was a little girl, I always assumed that the worst possible thing could and potentially would happen to me or my family. Yeah. So I've always had that mindset. So when I watch those documentaries, or you know, like the alpinists or um, free Soul or whatever, I'm yeah. just like, you are. This is
1: yeah, so part so scary. And I, I want to make clear that, like, there's a big part of me that really respects and It's incredible. Them. It's not that I think they're they're dumb. Yeah, but it's just like that's not how my my mind works.
0: Totally. And I think
1: you can live a safety conscious life without locking yourself in a padded room kind of thing. You can still enjoy the world and experience the world without taking just enormous outsized risk.
0: And maybe those people also would tell us like, well, you could wear your seatbelt in the car and get in an accident and die. Of course, we're we're all gonna die. We don't know how, right.
1: But there's, so when I was growing up skiing, one of the most famous professional skiers is a guy named Shane McConkie. And one of the things he did is he would ski off 2000 foot cliffs with a parachute. So he'd ski off the cliff and then pull his parachute and whatnot. And I remember uh, myself and many other people would watch him and say, A, it's amazing. It's so fun to watch. Like he's such a badass. And B, he's probably going to kill himself. Yeah. And the punchline here is he died Mm -hmm. doing it. And there was a part when he passed away where of course it's so sad and tragic and the whole community was ripped to shreds. But there's part of me that was like, yeah, we could we yeah. Would have seen this coming. Yeah. There's another part of me that's like, I think he saw it coming too. And he didn't, it didn't bother him.
0: Right. I think if right. he,
1: if he had uh, an eight ball and he knew that he was going to die in his thirties, he would have, I think he would have said, I'm, I'm kind of okay with it. Yeah. So there's another part of me that's like, that's an amazing, it's amazing to witness that kind of mindset, but I don't have it.
0: Yeah. Well, even in that initial chapter, you're talking about almost like with peace of we just don't know.
1: We have no idea. You have
0: no idea. Yeah. And I think that is something that could be really scary to a lot of people. And I think then they try and hold on tighter and try and control situations more to keep themselves safe and their family safe and to have certainty. But there is no certainty. No
1: certainty whatsoever. You really don't know. We really have no clue whatsoever. And I can name a dozen instances in my my own life of how I met my wife and like where we moved, decisions that we made that were no nothing decisions. We did not think them through at the time that transformed everything. And then it's it's one thing to look back and accept that. It's another thing to realize it's going to be the exact same going forward. That's what when you look back, it's like, oh, that's so funny. If I didn't hold the door for you, I wouldn't have met you. And then you got me a job. It's another thing to say it's the future is going to be exactly like that. That's terrifying.
0: If that's true, then the opposite is also true, that we can make decisions that seem like no big deal that can drastically affect our life in a negative way. Yes. That you can do something, that you invest in a sure thing that ends up you know, driving you to the edge of financial ruin. Like, or
1: you're checking your phone while you drive and you get in an accident. Yeah. And now you're paralyzed. Like, you can come up with a billion different examples of what that would be. So
0: what then do we do with that information? If we hold space for the fact that we really don't freaking know, is your message like will be present in this moment and appreciate what it is or why tell us that story.
1: I think there's two things to take away from it. I think at the broad level, like let's have some humility when we're thinking about the future. Particularly like for the whole economy, the whole country, where's the country going to be in 50 years? Like come on. Right. Do you think we have any idea whatsoever? That that's one takeaway. It's just a plea for humility. At the individual level, I think there is a, a there's an argument for however much safety you think you need in the world, however much like, caution you think you should have, you should probably have more because it's easy to underestimate how fragile the world can be. Yeah. And so everyone's different. And I think, again, I think there's a way to live a great, fulfilling, uh, fun life without, you know, wearing a football helmet 24-7. So I think when you think about it that way, it's, you, you do go out of your way to avoid some of the risks that might seem like worth taking. But if you really think them through, it's like, ah, I, just, I just don't want to do that. <laughs>
0: market.com slash rach thrive market.com slash reach. from a financial perspective too i'm going to misquote this and you'll know it better you say it a couple times i don't know if it's your quote or someone else's invest as an optimist and save as a pessimist or you got it. You okay got it. okay
1: save your money like a pessimist and invest like an optimist save your money with the idea that what's in front of us is going to be tough. And there's going to be recessions and job losses, and it's, it's a tough road in front of us. Invest your money with the idea that if you can endure that and make it through that minefield, the rewards for people who stick around are great. And I think mixing that optimistic and pessimistic view at the same time is, it's hard. It's a contradiction, but you need to get them to coexist. Because if you're just a pessimist, you're going to miss all the opportunity. And if you're just an optimist, You're gonna run over the cliff. So, you have to get them to coexist at the same time. And I think you can apply that framework to careers, relationships of like optimism and pessimism. Like, relationships take work and compromise, but if you can make it work and endure, they can be great. Yeah. So, like, that framework applies to a lot of things.
0: Well, it reminds me too of you talk about business leaders or even athletes, people who sort of get to the highest level of their game and kind of take the foot off the gas, like stop trying as hard, stop working yeah. as hard, and then end up losing it all, yeah. which is sort of the same mentality. Like I, it really made me think about the times in my career where things were just exploding, where I, I couldn't – if I fell off a log, I'd fall into a pile of money. Like I just – everything was working, working, working. <laughs> That's
1: such a good example. And
0: if I could go back in time, I wonder what advice I would give – to that version of myself. What it made me think of was if I knew then what I know now, when things were clicking and going the way that they should, I would have taken more money out of my business and put it in my own personal bank account because in my mind, we had hit a level in the business that we would always be at Mm -hmm. in terms of revenue. And so I could keep investing in the business and we could keep doing these things because we've hit this echelon. But the actuality is that things are cyclical and they go up and they come down. But I'd never experienced those heights before. So I kept all of the money there. And any entrepreneur will tell you, your business will always eat whatever money you leave inside of it. Whatever you feed it. It's gonna exactly. Be, it's it's just going to keep this. eating yes. it. And I wished that I had had a little bit of that optimistic,
1: pessimistic Yeah holding space for both. One of the best examples of this, like an extreme example, is Bill Gates, who from the day he started Microsoft in the the 70s, he said he wanted to have enough cash in the bank to make payroll for one year with no revenue. Yeah. Like the most pessimistic way to run any business. Total pessimist. On the other hand, he was taking the biggest business risk maybe in the history of entrepreneurship, where back in the 70s, he said every desk in America in the world needs a computer on it, which back then was the biggest pie in the sky idea. So he's a perfect example of crazy pessimist and wild optimist interacting at the same time. And even through today, Microsoft and also Google and Apple, they have so much cash in the bank that they could give back to investors or blow on something frivolous. A lot of the reason that they keep the cash in the bank, there's tax reasons and whatnot, but a lot of the reason is nothing's guaranteed. And I think they all know the history of technology being the top dog one day. And a nobody the next day, that's par for the course in technology businesses. That's not like, oh, it's happened a couple of times. That's the most likely outcome. And you're only going to survive for the next 30 years if you have enough cash and liquidity to make it through the minefield of what's going on. We've seen this. Facebook is a really interesting example of the the number one business of the past 15 or 20 years. Probably not an exaggeration. And by 2021, absolutely on top of the world, worth almost a trillion dollars, Mark Zuckerberg's thing about running for president. It's like nothing's on top of the world. He was at the time. Okay.
0: That's my nightmare.
1: (laughs) We're safe now. It's okay. (laughs) And then kind of, and then kind of not imploded, but looked like it was heading there. Stock fell 70%. All of a sudden, Mark's being hauled before Congress to like explain all of society's ills. And like there's like it had this giant like kind of meltdown and it's rebounded since then, but there is no business that's exempt from that. Yeah. And what is the glorious company today? Probably Apple, maybe Amazon. But Amazon too is another example of like two years ago was just an absolute money machine. Could do no wrong, was worth several trillion dollars. Everyone who worked there is a gazillionaire. And then that too, stock fell 50%, lost a lot of its mojo, lost a lot like some of its reputation and whatnot. And then like employee morale sinks from there nobody's exempt from that. Well, Nobody at all.
0: Talk about this. Like, Isn't there historically a lot of examples of businesses or leaders in businesses who sort of rest on their laurels and then what made you successful in the first place ends up you stop doing those things and then you kind of fall yeah. backwards. Yeah, what
1: made you successful is you wake up terrified every morning and you wake up so scared. As soon as you wake up in the morning, you're like, I've got all these goals and they're big audacious goals and I'm terrified I'm not gonna make them because if I don't make them, it's going to impact my identity. It's going to hurt my investors, whatever it is. So you're scared. Then once you meet those goals, the most natural reaction for people is, is to say, I don't need to be scared anymore. I used to be scared, but now I met my goals. So let's, let's calm down. And it's like, it's a treat for yourself. Like now you made it. Now here comes the reward. You can relax now. Now that you're relaxed, you get rid of what made you successful.
0: You're so right. You were successful dude.
1: because you are paranoid. Yes. Once you get rid of that, not only do you lose what made you successful, but now that you wake up happy and cozy and under a warm blanket, all your other competitors who are scared and hungry are going to start chipping away at it.
0: Right. And dude, it's so important to hold awareness of that because – As human beings, we get to make a decision. Yeah. You get to choose. Everybody listening to this who's like, well, I don't want to wake up paranoid. I don't want to have anxiety. I don't. Don't go into
1: business. Right. (laughs) Don't go into business. Totally
0: fine. Yeah. Absolutely. Like you get to choose. And I do think that is a much healthier space to exist in. Yeah. Than one where you wake up every day and you feel like you're already behind. Right. But without question, the seasons of my life where I have had that kind of energy were the most financially successful seasons I've ever experienced.
1: And I think if you want to relax, so to speak, you need to extract yourself from the game. You can't relax while you're playing. You can't do it.
0: Dude, unpack that. That's good.
1: I think I I really admire, I always use the example of Jerry Seinfeld, who was on top of the world in 19. His show was the biggest thing ever. NBC offered him personally, a hundred million dollars for one more season. And he said, no, we're done. We're out. And asked about it later, he said, "The only way to know where the top is is to experience the decline." And he said, "I have no interest in experiencing that." So even though the show was going vertical, he just said, We're, "I'm out. I've, I've accomplished enough." Other examples of that. I'm pretty sure Cameron Diaz did the same thing. Of I, I, I could I could be wrong on this, but she doesn't she she doesn't act anymore. No, she's still an A list celebrity. I'm right. sure people chase her around. But, she has
0: that wine company. Yes, but
1: the people who say, "I accomplished what I wanted in this game." And like, I, I just like rather than half-assing it, yes. I'm, I'm just going to extract myself from it. Oh
0: my God. I
1: so admire people who do that because the opposite of that, you can so imagine a scenario in which Seinfeld lasted five more seasons yes, and they all got fat and lazy and it sucked. It wasn't funny anymore. Right. And now instead of remembering it as the greatest show of our era, we would remember it as like the sad shell of its former self. You know what an example of that is? The Simpsons. The Simpsons is still on air. There's still like new episodes today. It feels insane. And most people don't know it because it's not a good show anymore. It's not In the 90s, it was the best show that existed. And today, it's like this sad shell of its former self. So compare Seinfeld to The Simpsons. It's like, you got to quit while you're ahead. And I hope I can do that myself. It's very hard to do because if you have a skill, you want to squeeze as much juice as you can out of it. But when you see like, how happy must Seinfeld and the rest of that crew be versus... The producers of The Simpsons, who are just kind of like maybe I'm sure they they actually love. They're their
0: also today. rolling around in piles of money. They're Simpsons rolling around in piles people, of money, so, so, they're so like fine. don't but don't
1: have any sympathy. Creatively, for them. yeah. Yes, if I look at how I would want my life to play out, it would be closer to the Seinfeld idea versus the Simpsons. Idea. Absolutely. Of course, that's a ridiculous level of success, but just quitting on your own terms. Yeah, my dad. I, I wrote about this in Psychology of Money. My dad did this too. He was an ER doctor which is in my view, the most stressful job that exists. Literally people dying in your arms every single day. And after 22 years of it, he said, I've had enough. It's too much. Working night shifts, very stressful. Like I'm ready to just pick up and move on to the next phase of my life. And by doing that earlier than I think he thought he would, it gave him so much happiness and joy. And you compare that to the people who are like, I didn't save enough. So I'm burnt out of my job, but I need to keep working for another decade. Exactly. And then it's not on your own terms. If you can control your own destiny by quitting while you're ahead, I think that's for almost everyone that's going to lead to a level of happiness in your life.
0: It reminds me of an interview. I was watching Jon Stewart on The Shop. Do you ever watch The Shop? No. Oh
1: my God. It's but, like, but big John Stewart fan, of course. Yeah.
0: So The Shop, it's on HBO, which is now called Max, which I don't understand, but we can get into that later, <laughs> is LeBron James... I think they have like eight or nine seasons. It's fantastic. I think it's one of the best produced shows that wow. exist today.
1: It's a it show is, or a podcast? It's a show. Okay.
0: So they are all in a barbershop and every single time it's six or seven people sitting in a barbershop, but like beautifully produced. Yeah. The photography is unreal. Everyone looks amazing. And the collection of people are really interesting. Comedians, yeah. rappers, athletes, and LeBron. And they all sit around and they just talk. The shooter, and as far yeah. as I can tell... They're just maybe three hours they're recording to get an hour or 45-minute show. But in an episode, they were asking John why he left The Daily Show. Kind of the same thing. You're crushing it. Still could have gone on for 10 more years, whatever. Why did you decide to leave? And he said, I knew it was time to leave when – When we first started the show, they'd be like, "Okay, John, we're going to put you in the suit. You got hair and makeup. We're going to go down to the street. We're going to talk to 15 people. Here's the bit. It's going to be really funny. We're going to turn it into this. And he'd be like, fantastic idea. Let's go. And he said in his last season, they'd be like, "Okay, John, we're going to put you in your suit. You got to do hair and makeup. We're going to go down the street. We're going to talk to 15 people. And he was like, I love this. But what if I don't wear a suit, I keep on my sweatpants. I don't really want hair and makeup. Maybe you can just do a little powder. What if we do it on Zoom so I don't have to go down to the street? (laughs) And he basically realized he was trying to back out of everything that had made him him great at what he was doing.
1: Seinfeld talked about this too, about what made the show so good is that he and Larry David would just walk around New York observing life. They would go to a deli and like watch how people ordered and that they would turn that into a skit. But once they got so famous, he couldn't do that anymore. Because he was so big, he could not go to the deli. He couldn't ride the subway because he would just get bombarded. So then he's kind of locked in his mansion, great life, but, but it took away from the thing that made him so great. And once you realize that that's gone, then, and I think this happens for a lot of CEOs too, where what made them great is like, let's say they're very good at designing a product. But now that the company grows, now they gotta be de facto head of HR and marketing and fundraising. And all these things, they used to spend all their time building products, but now they can't do that. They're pulled away from that to do all these other things. So it's easy to, miss the moment in which you are pulled away from the thing that made you good.
0: Right. I also do feel like there are a lot of founders who, because it is their baby, they get obsessed with needing to be the CEO, even though they have no actual skill to be a CEO at the level the business is now. Like if they would just stay as like the head of product or whatever it was and, and make all the money, but not hold the title, you'd actually be able to to grow the company to an even bigger place.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, there's a lot of people who are very good at startup, at running a startup. But once the company grows, they sh- they should and need to step back. Yeah. Uber and Travis Kalanick, who is the founder of Uber, nobody in the world was better at, fa- at running Uber when it was a new company. And once it scaled and became a big behemoth, I-, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say nobody was worse at running the company. You needed like a steady hand adult. And Travis was... Not swing for the fences, but like swing for the fences with a nuclear bomb kind of guy. So in the early days, Uber's not going to work unless you have him. Once it's a big company, the company is going to disintegrate if you keep him on. And, yeah. and, they, and they eventually fired him for yeah.
0: that. Well, it reminds me too, I feel like you're setting this up so beautifully for every other chat. Like you're speaking, I'm like, ooh, and the chapter <laughs> where you talk about. That we idolize or admire people because of a particular thing they've done in Mm -hmm. one area of their life, but then in every other area, they're a piece of crap. And we don't, as human beings, do a very good job of holding space for who they are completely in totality. I have talked about this with my boyfriend for at least two years of how do you like have someone that's really good at one thing that you really admire for this one thing that they do. And you're like, dang, I respect the hell out of this athlete. But then you watch, let's say, what it takes mm-hmm. to be at that level. And you're like, oh, you're, I mean, I, I, with all the respect in the world, because people like come at me, Michael Jordan, Kobe, like people that you're like, holy shit, you are the best of the best of the best. But if you watch the Jordan documentary. It's incredible. It's Kobe, and he's, it's the same. He's the worst. Yes. He's the best, but he's the worst. And kind of everybody who's talking about him is like, but also yeah. what
1: it took to get what there. it took. Those to guys work 24 hours a day, 365 days a year for 20 years.
0: Absolutely.
1: And there's so many people like that. I think you need to be able to separate. I so admire and love watching you and never in a million years would I want your life. Exactly. That's what's hard to separate. It's very easy to look at Michael Jordan and say, what did that would must be the, the most enjoyable life to live. No and I think way. by and large, the answer is no. No way. Because one of the theories I have is that people who are exceptionally good at one thing tend to be exceptionally bad at another.
0: They're hyper-focused like, on the yes, one thing. Yes, it's like
1: everybody's brain has the same amount of capacity for work and pain and whatnot. And the people who are crazy good at one thing just devote all of their mental bandwidth to one thing at yes. the expense of everything else. And for a lot of these people, I wrote the other day, among the top 10 richest men in the world, there are a cumulative thirteen divorces, and seven of the top ten have been divorced at least once, and so which is a much higher percentage than the general average. So here you have a group of people who are like universally admired, particularly by other young men who are like, "I want to be that person." But then you dig into what it's done to their personal life, and by and large, it's not great. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big Warren Buffett fan. Yeah, I as, can tell I, 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 you, as an investor, I, I Charlie I, Munger. I'm I, like I, you I quote him once or guys. twice, yeah, once or once or one, one or two hundred times. <laughs> yeah. But there's a there's a really good biography of Buffett called The Snowball, and it goes into like very deep detail about his entire life. And you realize that his financial success came at the direct conflict and expense of his, his personal life. And the reason he's so successful is because since he's been 11 years old, he's devoted 24 hours a day to picking stocks at the expense of everything else, his kids, his wife, everything. So I, I, I love reading biographies of those kind of people. Who again, you can at the end of the book, you say, Gosh, I so admire, I'm so glad you exist, and I admire you for so many reasons. And I would never want to live your life. And
0: that's the thing, is that most people don't
1: make that complete jump. the and yes.
0: they don't add that in. You you use the example in the book of Elon Musk,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which I mean just. Even a since genius I've written it, it's got in-
1: it's gotten crazier, yeah. even since I since I wrote it. But there's part of me that's like, of course he's crazy. Of course <laughs> he says crazy things online. Yeah. This is a guy who took on NASA. When he was 30 years old and one, <laughs> like, of course he's crazy. The reason you like him is because he's crazy, but you have to then realize that there are things that he's going to do that you crazy things he's going to do that you don't like as well. There's no such thing as like a crazy out of the box thinker who's also very calm and polite and PC, et cetera. That doesn't exist. Right? Like the reason that you like them is because they're these wild minds and you have to accept that those come in the same package. You can't pick and choose which part of it you want. And so this is it's really important when you are looking up to these people and finding role models. Or actually I would separate that. It's one thing to look up to someone. It's another to consider them a role model. So I really look up to Elon Musk and I'm glad he exists in the world because of the technologies he's going to create. He's not a role model. And like it's important to distinguish. You can have one of the same. He's not a role model in the sense that I do not want to mimic his life for myself. Yeah. If other people do like that, that there there might be some people a 19-year-old entrepreneur who's like I want to be the next Elon Musk. And if you really know what it takes, then great. I'm glad you exist too. But I like just a calm, peaceful private life with my kids. Right. And I think right. most people that's most people that's what they want. Right. So it's really it gets dangerous when you look up to these people but you're only looking up to a sliver of their life without realizing what the full package entails.
0: Well, the the other problem is that a younger generation looks at certain people and does admire them and thinks that the entire package is what is required to be at that level. Yeah. So there are a lot of these sort of billionaire, we know who they all are, who are doing things and also kind of getting away with being an asshole. Yes. Like they're just not, they're just doing like everything that happened with Twitter. You're just like, what? Why? Man child with too much money is happening here. Yes. But then a younger generation thinks, oh, to, you know, he's a genius and part of being a genius is being
1: awful to everybody. They view it as a license to be an
0: asshole. Exactly. And and also, Josh living in your mom's basement, you haven't done anything. You're just being an asshole.
1: Yes. You have nothing else to show for it. Nothing else. Two really interesting examples to me on this. There's an interview of Donald Trump in the early 80s. before When he was like a known real estate developer, but he was not Donald Trump yet. Very calm. Very measured, very quiet, very, completely different person. No matter what you think of Trump today, utterly different person. Same with Musk. If you watch an interview of Elon Musk 20 years ago, when he was a successful entrepreneur, but he was not the richest man in the world yet. Very calm, very mellow, very measured. So I think for a lot of people, it, it's the classic thing. I, this is not, I didn't come up with this, but money just accentuates who you are. right? And for a lot of those people, before they were crazy successful, they had to get along with other people. And so they were calm and measured. And once they became so successful that they did not need to do it, then –
0: It all just comes out. The
1: demons just poured out from there. And who are we to say that you and I and other people wouldn't wouldn't do that? Because, of course, I – to be – to get along in society, I have to bite my tongue sometimes. Yeah. And I have to make sure that I'm polite to people who I – don't want to be polite to because I want to get along in society. If you have what they fuck call, what money. they call fuck you money. <laughs> most people, once you have fuck you money, will start saying fuck you to people. Yep. And that's, so I, I think you see that with a lot of these people, but to Josh in the basement, if he has not earned it yet and he's just saying fuck you to people, that's, that's the yeah, problem.
0: He's just a jerk. Yeah, I do love though. I mean, I think that there's such a, an interesting line in this. I was watching Kim Kardashian. Uh, she posted a video the other day for her skims which is her like underwear brand yep. and i never watched the kardashians i literally only started following her on social media when she did an interview with david letterman and i was super impressed i thought she was very intelligent and i was like what's your deal Are, do you follow kim kardashian
1: as as much as i as i need to
0: okay <laughs> the bare I, minimum. More it, it was pretty it was pretty epic so the other day she posted a very funny Let's call it a commercial. Commercials, I don't know if they even still exist, but let's call it a commercial on social media about her underwear line. Mm -hmm. And it was really clever and very inappropriate. She has a new bra, which is a bra with fake nipples. (laughs) See, it's funny. funny. I don't even know if it's legit. I just think she's like, I know what's gonna piss people off and have everybody write about me. you
1: You know the other reason I think she does that? So that people like you and me will talk about it, right? right now. Which was happening. Worked. It I, worked. No,
0: I watched and I was like, "You are a genius." Yes, because you are going to get people will hate you more for this. They're going to say it's ridiculous. But I think it's, say, I
1: think it's the all attention is good attention.
0: Exactly right. Thing,
1: which I think that family in particular has mastered more than anybody yeah. else. All attention is good attention.
0: Yeah, they really and, have.
1: But I think there's a, for ordinary people, of course that's a that's a dangerous mindset. Particularly, I think if you're a young person and you're just. On social media, trying to get as much attention as you can, it's super cringe. And of course, you can watch Elon Musk and be like, "Well, he says these inappropriate things, and he gets a hundred million likes." Yeah. So, therefore, Josh in the basement should do it too. And that's like, no, you got to earn your way there. Kim Kardashian has earned it. Yeah, Musk has earned it. Even yeah. if you look down upon it, they've earned their ability to say whatever they want.
0: Absolutely. And
1: I, it, it, you're right. It's it's a big problem when other people look up to that as something to emulate themselves. Yeah.
0: What are some of the other things that people today are like, these are the worst times we've ever had. The sky is falling. It's a dumpster fire. And you're like, no, actually, this has happened a million times before.
1: I remember in uh, I think it was 2008 and I was at a financial conference and there was a speaker It was just before the election in 2008. And it was a political science professor. And he said, every single presidential election since 1900 has been the most important election of my life and he said at some point it's not it's just a run of, it's just another election at some point it's not the most important and since that point of paying attention to it every election 2012 16 20 now 24 is the most important election of our lives and it's not to say that they don't have consequence not to say that like you should just like whatever happens is totally fine but it's always easy to think that what's going on in politics today is worse and nastier and more dangerous than it's ever been and to some extent, like maybe it's true, but politics has always been a very nasty place. Particularly, I think if you read about what Washington was like in the 1960s is a period that sticks out of like, it was a terrible place. They were stabbing each other in the back, left and right. There was election interference. There was all kinds of things. My favorite story is when JFK was running for Congress in the 1950s, he was running against, he had this opponent named Tom Russo, and it was a pretty cl- close race. So JFK's dad, Joe Kennedy, found another guy in town named Tom Russo to run so that on the ballot there would be two Tom Russo's and people didn't know who to vote for. Shut up. And JFK won, won that vote, got into Congress, and then re- because he became a congressman, he eventually became president. So here's the thing. When you hear that story today, you laugh because it's like, that's amazing. At the time, you would be like, Democracy's broken. Absolutely. So there's part of me that's like it's always it's always Mm -hmm. been a a cluster. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that you should just say, like, oh, everything's fine today, but it's always been a mess. Let's not pretend like it used to be great and now it fell off a cliff. It's always been a disaster.
0: Right. Oh my gosh.
1: You you can look up on Wikipedia. I think it was like the 1956 congressional race. And on the list, there's two Tom Russos. And JFK's dad paid one of the guys to run. To get his name on there.
0: Uh, that is ser- seriously, that is so insane. The other thing that was in there was I think you said, what is it? Every 10 years, there's some kind of.
1: The world breaks on average every 10 years. Not exactly every 10 years, but think about in modern times, COVID was definitely one of them. Like out of the blue, you wake up one morning and nothing's the same. 9 11 was definitely one of them. And you can go back in history, Pearl Harbor, obviously, the Great Depression. It's like once every 10 years, something happens where your vision of the future, one morning you wake up and it's like, no, everything's different now. And I don't, you know, I have to kind of reset the movie in my head of what I thought the future was going to be. And it'll be like that going forward. And the common denominator of those events is that nobody sees them coming. 9-11, COVID, it wasn't so much that they were big. It's that nobody knew that they were going to happen until the moment that they happened. And same with Pearl Harbor. And so that's what really throws people off. It's the surprise element of it. And a lot of, the reason that they are big is because they're surprises. Nobody knew how to deal with them. Nobody prepared for them. And so you can state confidently that the biggest news story of the next year, in the next five years, in the next 50 years, is something that nobody's talking about today. Nobody. It's not in the news. It's not in any economic outlook. Your favorite pundit has never uttered the name of what the event's going to be. It's the equivalent of 9-11. There's this crazy, I, I write in the book, there's this really haunting video of the morning of September 11th. <sighs> yeah. And it's at like 8, 10 in the morning, like minutes before the attack. And it's a newscaster. And she says something to the effect of, good morning, September 11th, 2001. It's a beautiful day here in New York City. It's high of 72. And that was like minutes away from the attack. And I think there is some example of that going on today, right now, or certainly in the next couple of years, where you think the future is so predictable and it's a beautiful sunny day and then everything changes, whether it's in your own life or for the whole world. So that's that's another of just like plea for humility is like those big events you never see coming.
0: Well, also I feel like it's a reminder. This is this moment, this is what you've got right now. This is it. This is the guarantee, this exact moment, me and you sitting here, five minutes from now, we don't know. Not a guarantee. Not a guarantee.
1: Let's stay here for at least five right, minutes. Right. Yeah. So we five know.
0: more <laughs> minutes so we can see. But how often do we live our lives striving for the next thing, the next thing, the next thing? And you don't know that that next thing is ever going to come,
1: right? But I think I, I don't think we're ever going to fix that. I think that's ingrained in people too. And for like from an evolutionary standpoint, it makes sense that people are always worried about future risks and how to get ahead in the future, and trying to learn from the past so that they can get better in the future. And therefore, every moment of time except the present gets your attention. There's a lot of reasons that that occurs, and it's only like the monks who figure out how to only live. And it takes like a tremendous amount of work to get it done. And everyone who's tried meditation knows how hard it is. It's so freaking hard because everyone's natural state is dwelling on the past and dreaming about the future or worrying about the future. Right. And so it's, it's very difficult to do. But everyone, I think, knows when you have a random moment when you are just in the present. Sometimes it lasts for five seconds. That's when you're happy. That's when you're, maybe you're like rafting or something. And in that moment, you're not thinking about work you're not thinking about the meeting you have next week. you're just focused on what's in front of you and that's that's the happiest you'll ever be. It's so like you you know that's the secret to happiness even if it's just so ridiculously hard to make it work.
0: Yeah. were there things when you set out to write this book that you really hoped people were gonna like I told you it honestly helped my mental and emotional well-being. I think going forward it was like a light switch like, oh right, this is true. I understand this. this is real. But were there things that you set out to have people take away or were you just like these are really interesting topics to you as a historian and a writer and I want to document them or was there an intention for the audience as well?
1: It's always the latter because it gets dangerous as a writer when you think I want to give advice to specific people because I don't know you. I don't know the other people. So who am I to say that I know something that you don't? Right. So I've always just tried to write for an audience of one, which is me. And then you take a leap of faith that if it's interesting to me, hopefully it'll be interesting to other people as well. There's also another thing of like there might be a takeaway from a chapter that like I think this is the takeaway. But given your life experiences, you find some completely other takeaway from it different that I would never consider. So I think that happens a lot, too, of because of what you've experienced in, in, in your life, you're going to read into something that I didn't intend, hopefully in a good way. So I I, I I never set out to change people's minds. I just view all of my writing in all the books as just almost like a diary. I'm just like I'm trying to figure out my own life and come up with a story that I think is enjoyable. And hopefully you'll be able to re- relate to at least some of it.
0: Is there a chapter in the book in particular that you feel like, man, this is the one? This is, the, this is the message I feel like people need most right now.
1: I think the chapter on expectations versus reality, about how all happiness in life is just the gap between your expectations and reality. Absolutely. And therefore, it is not only possible, but par for the course, that in your life or throughout the whole, all of society, things get better, your income goes up, your net worth goes up, your health improves, and you're no happier from it because your expectations rise by even more. If your income doubles and your expectations triple, you're, you feel worse off. Even after your income doubles. And that is everybody. Yeah. Everybody falls for that trap. And if you look today in 2023, the average median household adjusted for inflation is earning twice as much as they did in the 1950s. Adjusted for inflation twice. And they're no happier for it. And if, I, I if was If anything, talking, I think they, they're less happy.
0: And we as a society tend to idolize the 1950s as like-
1: This glory period of yes, prosperity. Yes. And social media- makes this a hundred times worse than it's ever been. So I think we don't understand what the consequence of that is because it's really only existed in like a really uh, high-tech way for like five or 10 years. Like how long has the Instagram algorithm been like really heavily curated? Five or 10 years? Yeah. And it inflates everyone's aspirations. And now it's even getting worse because on Instagram, there are influencer accounts that are all AI generated. It's either of a person or of like the inside of somebody's house and none of it's real. It's all AI generated. And yeah. they can that algorithm can like tweak and twist. Like what if we make the nose 1% slimmer? Will people like it more? And then it's a, it's it's going to inflate everyone's aspirations to a degree that is off the charts. Yeah. Now I say like when I was growing up, when I was a kid in the 90s, in my in my world, rich people drove new F150s. And regular people drove used F-150s. That was the range of outcomes. (laughs) And now you see what social media does to everybody to where the definition of success is not only are you perfectly beautiful, but you also have a Lamborghini and a private jet and a private island and like go on down the list. And that to a lot of the young people, that's not what you strive for. That's like the baseline.
0: Yeah. And
1: that's when it's like, well, we're screwed if that's the baseline. Because even if you hit that level, that's just meeting the goal. That's not That's not exceeding the goal. That's just meeting it.
0: The example that you give in the book, which I, I ended up like telling my boyfriend about this entire chapter because he is the most in the moment, so present, very, very chill about life, just sort of like he is a very happy human. Yeah. And so when I was reading this chapter, I was like, oh, this is such a good – explanation for why this is so he's English so he's a lot of confusion about Americans and the way we do things or what we believe and I was telling him about the 1950s sort of being this idolized time here and the example you use in the book which makes total sense was that In the 1950s, you could not see the rest of the world. The people that you saw were your community and your town who all basically had the same kind of life that you had. So there was no jealousy, mostly. There wasn't envy. You weren't looking at the haves and the have-nots. Much
1: less than there is now. Exactly. And then cable TV kind of extended that a little bit, and the social media was just like a nuclear bomb on it for comparison to other people. But in the 1950s, or even, I would say, even like to some degree in the early 2000s, what you, who you compared yourself to were your neighbors and your coworkers and other people in town. And that's what you saw. So it was easier to keep your expectations in check because by and large, you're probably doing about as well as your neighbors on average. Whereas now, like screw the neighbors. You turn on, you flip open Instagram and that's who you're comparing yourself to. Yeah. And so even if you're doing great and making a lot of money, and even if you're beautiful, There's somebody else on Instagram who is prettier and making more money than you.
0: Yes, at any moment. At any moment. It doesn't
1: matter. So, that's, you know, on on one hand, it's just an observation of what actually makes people happy. It's people who can keep their expectations in check. And it's the gap between expectations and circumstances that actually leads to happiness. And on the other hand, it's just this observation of like, if you accept that as true, we're in this really dangerous spot right here with social media. And it's perfectly designed and extremely successful to dump anxiety on your lap. That's what the smartest minds of our generation are figuring out algorithms to make you more anxious and make you feel more insecure. And they're very good at it.
0: Right. It is not an accident that anxiety has never been higher and social media has existed. Yes. Like it's not not an accident.
1: There's a psychologist from NYU named Jonathan Haidt who's done a lot of research on this, who shows that teenage depression and suicide exploded when Facebook mobile came out. And you can like pinpoint it down to nearly the month. When Facebook mobile comes out, you have all these teenagers who are suddenly comparing themselves, how they look and what their lives are to other people. And those other people, of course, are just giving you the highlight reel of their life. Of course. But when you see other people's highlight reel and you view it as that's what their entire life is versus my life is much lower than that, of course, when you're 16, you're gonna get depressed and anxious and feel insecure.
0: Yeah, I mean, I keep talking about this it just so happens that in a lot of interviews and conversations lately, this has come up and I keep talking about it and it feels worth saying to the audience that it's more just to hold awareness of the fact that this exists, hold awareness of the fact that you're being manipulated, hold awareness of the fact that this is a machine. I I just sat with Michael Easter and we were talking about this idea that if you are not paying for something, you are the product. Yes. You are the yes. thing being sold. Mm-hmm. And there are really smart people who are figuring out how to keep you locked in, how to keep you obsessing. You have a great Charlie Munger quote in this chapter.
1: The world is not driven by greed. It's driven by envy. Is it is it? so yes. real. Yeah. It is
0: so real that you look at what someone else has. You and say, then if you they can have it, why can't I? Why can't I have And not that only thing?
1: that, but I know that person. They're not very smart. I should have more.
0: And it, it's just like... Not to sound super dorky, but like step outside the matrix for a second and just see it for what it is. Because if we can do that, if we can create some separation between ourselves and this thing, right? Social media, which is not only about envy, but also about fear and the world's burning down and you've got to stay attached to your phone or you're not going to know what's happening is so freaking dangerous. And if you can just get a little space to understand that the thoughts that you're thinking might not be your own. Yes. In that my I have used this example so many times it is so stupid, but it is really good for this. So I got to interview Arnold Schwarzenegger for his new book, which was exciting. And he was talking about going to the gym. Have you read his new book? No, but I'm, actually, I'm, a,
1: I'm, a, I'm a big Arnold fan. It's
0: actually really good.
1: He's, um, he's one of – not to, not to uh, derail this, but he's one of the people who it's easy to make a caricature out of him. Yes. He's actually brilliant. Yeah. He's, he's such a smart guy. The book
0: is really good. I was pleasantly surprised, yeah. by, and I think it will be very helpful to a lot of people. That being said, in the book, he talks about how whenever he's at the gym, he always sees people at the gym, and he's just like, what the fuck are you doing? Like. You have no plan. You don't know why you're And He's like, I will walk up to guys all the time and be like, what are you doing? And the guy's like, oh, I'm doing a workout. I'm trying to get healthy. And he's like, no, no, What? what's your intention? What's your goal? You're wandering around aimlessly. You don't know what you're doing. Which, as a side note, can you imagine how terrifying I just, I just if you're like say, a 50-year-old guy and Arnold comes up Arnold to you at comes the gym? Up and starts yelling at you Yeah, at the gym. you'd be like, ah! But, so he's talking about, and in the interview, he was saying, you have to know why you're doing something. You have to know what your goal is for this situation. And I think of myself for years, I've been going to the gym and I go to an equinox and you know what an equinox is like. And it's just the most beautiful people. It's like, everyone's a model. It's absolutely insane. And so I go there and I'm going there because I want to have energy. I want my mind to work well. I feel better. My stress lowers. I do care about how I fit in my clothes. I want that to be a thing. I want to be as healthy as possible to raise these kids, and I want to live well. I, I, happy, healthy, dead. That's my goal, right? Yep. That's an Abraham Hicks quote. That's not mine. <laughs> but all of that to say, that's why I'm at the gym. Mm-hmm. But whenever I go to the gym or whenever I see like a beautiful fitness model come through my feed on social media, I'm always like, oh, my God, look at her butt. Why not me? Look at her mm-hmm. butt. She's got that like beautiful, rounded booty, what she's been working on, like that chick works on that butt, like five days a week, mom. Yeah. She's killing it. Every time I'm like, I should do some butt exercises. There's a best butt ever at the Equinox. I can take that class. I should really get in. And after talking to Arnold, I was like, I don't care about I. What are you doing? Yeah. No desire to have a the certain kind of butt that's there's,
1: nowhere on my list. There's part of me too that when I hear that, thinks that there's so many different examples of that, that would be good of like, you see someone and you're like, oh, that's motivation for me to get better. Now you can take it to a very unhealthy degree. Absolutely. A lot of it of looking at other people and saying, I want that too, is a very healthy motivator that if you took it away, it would be, you, you would be a shell of what you would, right. w- what you actually are today. But social media turns into such a dangerous degree. Yes. We had this example, my, my wife and kids went to Maui this summer and when we were leaving, we got one family photo and it's, Awesome. It was like such It was one of those just, just by luck. It's like, ah, oh, that's frame that and put it on the wall forever. And if you look at the photo, it's like, oh, you guys were happy and everything was great. And we laughed because it was like, no, my daughter was melting down. Our flight was delayed. We were like, we were all hungry. If you actually knew what was going through our minds at the moment, it's the opposite of what it actually looks like in the picture. And there's so much of that too. I heard this like really powerful story years ago. It was David Brooks in the New York Times. This is like 2005, I want to say. And he says, two things happened to Julia Roberts this week. One, she won the Academy Award. And two, she found out that her husband was cheating on her. So here's the, the million dollar question. Did Julia Roberts have a good week? Mm. And you are an idiot if you think the answer is yes. But it's so easy to just focus on this one little thing of what it looks like from the picture without realizing that if you actually get the full view of what's going on in their life, it's much different. And that is social media to a T. That's a perfect example of what social media is. It looks like everyone's winning the Academy Award. But if you see the whole view, everyone's suffering. Everyone's got their demons. Everyone's got their skeletons. Everyone's going through some shit with no exceptions. Some people's lives are better than others, but no one is exempt from that. And so that's why social media is great and I love it and I spend a lot of time on it. But having your close personal friends who you can talk with and understand their demons and commiserate about their demons and your demons That's the most healthy thing in the world.
0: Well, and going back to this idea of us just holding space for what that is, is a great form of entertainment. But when it starts to augment the way that you think about yourself or, you know, I'm not – I need this, this, and this. If I had that chick's butt, then I would be happy. If I had his car, then I would be happy. That chapter, it's funny that you talk about that one because it was something that really resonated with me. I – am a very happy person. Mm -hmm. And I'm a very happy person. I am a million times happier than the height of my career, the highest it's ever been a a million times happier. And a big part of that is because I have high expectations of myself, but I don't have high expectations of other things in my life. I'm pleasantly surprised kind of all day long. And I think that's, uh, you know, over a decade of doing a gratitude practice every morning and looking for little moments that I can be grateful for is I'm just like tickled pink yeah, that I wore great. orange and black for Halloween today.
1: I w- that's it's, it's, it's very great, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I have a friend named Brent B. Shore who says the secret to a good marriage is when y- both husband and wife have this mentality of, I want to serve my spouse, but I expect nothing in return. And if you both do that, then you're both pleasantly surprised. Yeah. You're like, oh, you did this little thing for me, but I like I never expected that. Like, I want to serve you, but I had no intention, I had no expectation that you were going to serve me in return. Yeah. And if you both do that in equal amounts, you both wake up pleasantly surprised every single day. Like, that's that's the key to it.
0: Do you have in any of your research or, or your own life examples of how people can, I hate to even say like lower your expectations because it just sort of sounds like wah, wah. I don't think it's that. I don't think it's like, it's not pessimistic. Yeah. It's
1: it's appreciative.
0: It's appreciative. The,
1: one of the examples I use, I use this in The Psychology of Money, is from Stephen Hawking, who was the late scientist, one of the smartest people to live in the last hundred years. And if you're not familiar, he had a motor neuron disease and he was paralyzed from head to toe. He had no control over his body. And he did an interview with the New York Times many years ago. And in the interview, he's talking about how happy he is and how great his life was and just how like how amazing everything was. Like for a guy whose life ended up in a wheelchair, and you can't move a single muscle in his body, if there's anyone who has a right to complain, it's him. But he's not. He's happier than most of us. So they asked him, the New York Times asked him, they said, what is your secret to happiness? And he said, my expectations were reduced to zero when I was 21, which is when he got his disease. And he said, everything else since then has been a bonus. So like when you're, when you have, when your expectations are just pushed straight to the floor, and at 21, they say, not only are you paralyzed, but you're probably not going to live much longer then every day that you wake up feels like a gift. And to everyone else whose life is perfect, they wake up and they expect it to be perfect. And then therefore the fact that their coffee was a little cold makes them angry. Where Stephen Hawking's wake up and sees the sunrise and says, ah, what a gift, I never expected this. So like when you put it that stark, you're like, of course, that's exactly what it is. And I know, I'm sure you know, very wealthy people who are miserable because they expect everything. Yes. And if there's a speck of dust on their floor they're angry at the housekeeper. Right. And it's just like what's the to me it's like what's the benefit of something like that? Not not against housekeepers, but when you when your life gets so great that anything less than perfection is going to make you angry. You know where I see this a lot this funny example that I noticed on on the DC Amtrak if you're taking the train from DC to New York which a lot of people do, they have a quiet car. And in the quiet car, you're supposed to speak at no higher than a whisper. It's supposed to, if you want to get some work done, you go to the quiet car. And on the quiet car, everybody's pissed off. Because if one person says a single word in a normal tone of voice, everyone's like, shut up, you're on the quiet car. What are you doing? So you go there for peace and quiet, <laughs> but every, it backfires because your expectations are that you will not be interrupted at all. And then so, so, everyone, so everyone's angry on the quiet car even though you go there for peace.
0: Oh, my God. So you
1: see it like once you – if you put yourself in an environment that inflates your expectations, it's always going to lead to some level of misery.
0: Well, it's also that it's like the law of familiarity. Like you get used to something – Something that used to be so amazing. Holy crap, I can't believe I get to sit in this seat on the plane. I can't believe I get to afford a restaurant like this. I can't believe that these things get to happen. And then you just get used to it. It's cool just, once. Right. Yeah. You just like accept that this is what it is. Yeah. And then anything that's not that feels so much less of it than- too is
1: the thrill of anticipation. So even yeah. the first time you experience it, you got most of your dopamine dreaming about it. One of one of these these You're examples so right. I thought was so crazy is the people who walked on the moon, the NASA astronauts who walked on the moon, a lot of them, when they came back and people said, what was it like? They they, they said something to the effect of, eh, it's not that big. And it bothered a lot of them that they would be like heading back from the moon mission and they'd be like, yeah, it was, it was okay. And I think what a lot of that was, was the anticipation is what brought all the joy. And then the actual experience kind of deflated. And then everyone knows the personal example of summer vacation. Dreaming about it is what's fun. Doing it is okay. And dreaming about next summer is probably more fun than actually experiencing the vacation this summer. Because I think what you want is dopamine. Yeah. And what you get dopamine from is dreaming, not doing. You get it from dreaming.
0: Okay. So this is interesting because when I read this chapter, I realized – so this summer, I started walking the Camino de Santiago. Are you oh, familiar? No, no. Okay. So Camino de Santiago is um, a road from the border of France to the coast of Spain. Great. You literally walk across Spain. And it has been around since like the 1100s. Wow. It's an ancient pilgrimage. There's like 10 different routes that you can take. But still to this day, pilgrims from all over the world come. It takes about 40 days. And wow. you walk the distance. It's You should... Look it up. It's really cool.
1: You you, you did the whole thing? I,
0: I didn't do the whole thing because I have four kids and I can't right. leave for 40 days. Yeah. But I had wanted to do it forever and then I realized I could do it in chunks. It's not how typically people do it. But if I don't do it in chunks, I won't be able to do it. My daughter's six, so I'm yeah. going to have to wait 12 years. Yeah. All of that to say that there isn't – it's not a sexy vacation. You really have to be committed. You got to like a physical challenge. It's dirty. You're staying in little like – If you're fancy, you stay in a hotel, but the hotel's like not, it's not bougie. You're maybe going to eat chips for dinner. Like it's, it's very, you're rough in it in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. The most beautiful country I've ever seen. Absolutely incredible. Like everybody along those routes knows what you're doing. So they see you with your backpack. Yeah. They're like, oh, buen camino. It's really cool. So I was so excited to do this. I've been dreaming about it for years. But there is not a ton. Uh, there's not a bunch of beautiful pictures. The hashtags on Instagram are basically a dirt road. There's not blog, but there's not YouTube. There's very little visual aid yes. of what this is going to be. I'd read a bunch of memoirs, but I didn't have really any expectation other than I'm going to walk for 16 miles a day. Yeah. That is without question. One of the greatest experiences of my life, and when I read this chapter, I was like, "That is why."
1: Because your expectations were low going. No into it. expectation, exactly. So yep.
0: everything was a meal. It was so much prettier. It was a bonus when I got to have a nice meal. It was amazing. Like all of it was so great, and I was telling my boyfriend we did it together, and we're going to go back and do you know another leg this summer. But I was like, I'm same thing. I'm not looking at the map. I'm not looking at the route. I don't want to look at pictures. I don't want to know what we're walking into because reading that chapter made me realize that
1: was why. That's a smart way to do it. No expectation. But what does everyone actually do, including myself? Before vacation, look. you look at pictures all day yep. long. And, it's like, and so when you get there, it's, yes. it's, just, it's just average to you. Yeah. That's true. I heard, I heard Tim Ferriss say this thing, that he booked his summer vacation six years in advance, like six years of vacations, so that he got six years of dreaming about Looking at the calendar and be like, oh, in four years, I'm going to this place. And you could dream. Like if you get all your dopamine from dreaming, at least least, like backfill it in to get a lot of it.
0: Holy crap. I I, mean, I I just – I hate the idea of like building up to something great like that and then leaving and sort of being like wah, wah.
1: I'll tell you like my example of this. When I proposed to my wife 14 years ago. She knew I was going to propose. She picked out the right. It was not a surprise. She didn't exactly know when, but this was not like a, a shock to her. But I wanted there to be some surprise. So after I proposed, which she knew was coming, I said, I have one more surprise for you. We're going to Maui in the morning. And that was a total surprise to her. Ooh. And we were, we were very young at the time. So like, that was a big deal. We're going to Maui. And that was both because we had just gotten engaged, but because it was an utter surprise to her was the best seven days yes. of our relationship because she had no idea what was coming. And then so the next morning when we're on the plane, she's still in the state of shock. Versus – and you compare that to the vacation that you plan for six months right. and look at pictures and the surprise was a 100 times better.
0: Yeah. What can we do inside of an individual day to sort of lower expectations about – like are there practices you have in your own life where you're like to be mindful of this?
1: I think it's easy to not want to lower your expectations because you view it as giving up you view it as like uh, the opposite of ambition. And you're just like, I'm just going to become this glum Gus kind of person. And I think you need to get away from that. Like, no, lowering expectations is what's going to make you happy. And so whether it's your career or your your relationship ambitions, like whatever it might be, like going out of your way to lower those is not giving up. It's the opposite. This is what's going to make you a very happy person. I'll give you a very specific example in finance. And it's kind of nerdy and hyper-specific, but- the stock market historically has returned about 6% per year on average. When I'm thinking about my own retirement and savings, I just assume it's going to be like three. And so like, let's take what it's done in the past and just chop it in half, just arbitrarily. And then if it's three, I'm like, great, that's what I expected. And if it's more, it feels like a bonus. I think that's just like one very specific example of going out of your way to just be like, look, it's probably going to be X, but let's figure out a way to be happy if it's way less than that. And I think for your career ambitions and your vacation ambitions, you can do that. I think that's the thing. The thing that Tim Ferriss uh, planning his vacations way in advance, I think is almost the opposite of managing your expectations. It's like, like if you just own the fact and embrace with two hands that you're going to get the most pleasure out of the anticipation, let's get the most anticipation that we can possibly get out of it. Yeah,
0: that's good. That's good.
1: So I think, but it's not an easy thing to do. I think people are wired to Again, that's where you get your dopamine. That's where that's where you're getting the buzz in your head from the anticipation. So to push back against that is a very difficult thing to do.
0: Well, it's also maybe an easy way to kind of lean into this for listeners is to start with noticing where you have expectation. Yeah. So this definitely makes me think of my relationships with my kids. My two oldest are the oldest is almost seventeen, and then his younger brother's fifteen. And it really does shift and change so much when your kids become teenagers because they're getting closer and closer to being adults, which is terrifying and awesome and all of it. But I am so hyper aware of not wanting to put my expectations on who they are Yeah, as something I really learned a lot about as a parent because I did not grow up with parents who thought that way of not wanting my kids to feel like they need to be an extension of me or that they need to show up in a certain way in order to have my love or appreciation, that they just get to be their own unique, special creatures. And I think especially when it comes to teenagers, sort of being pleasantly surprised by the way that my 15-year-old is maturing so much and helping more around the house and doing and really noticing that and appreciating it so much when it happens. Like, oh my hey, thank you so much for taking out the trash with without me having to ask you. That is like yeah. high five, that's awesome. But not assuming he did something the other day that was like, I was so annoyed when it happened. And then I was like Rachel, that is what a fifteen-year-old boy does. That's
1: what we did, right? Yes. He yeah.
0: he tipped back in a chair and just happened to be a very fancy chair from anthropology, and the legs slightly bent. Of course. And I walked in, in the morning, and y'all, I almost started crying. I you, was know like, what's,
1: you know what? You know what? What I think about when you tell that story? <laughs> you know how many chairs I broke doing right? that when I was a teenager? Right. But I yell at my son for doing yes. that too. But I did it all day long.
0: Exactly. And I was just like in my brain. I went to such a crack I'm like, this is why we can't have nice things. Like I got this one chair. Why could you have broken the target chair, not the anthropology <laughs> chair? And I went and woke him up. I'm like, Did you bend the legs in my chair? And he was like, Yeah, mom, I didn't mean to. Like, I, you know, and he's like making all these excuses. I was so frustrated and I left. And then I came back in the house and I was like, dang it, Rachel, he's a 15-year-old boy. Like yeah. he did what a 15-year-old boy does. He didn't do it on purpose. But you're having an expectation, and I do think this sometimes, that I expect them to be more mature than a 15-year-old boy. Because
1: you're viewing it through your adult mind. Right,
0: right. And if I can just like – when you and
1: I were 15 – Yeah, come on. We did worse.
0: Oh, my God. We did so much worse and then – I mean the difference is I would have covered it up. Yeah, I would have fixed that chair my mom would never have known.
1: I think a lot of people too have expectations for their own life that are faulty because they view just other people's lives about – the highlight reel of their life. Right. Whereas everybody knows if you get to know somebody well, everyone's got some problems. Absolutely. Everyone's got some anxieties or a little depression or some insecurity, whatever it is. But if you don't know those people deeply, you look at it from the outside and you say, your life looks perfect from the outside. And therefore, I'm going to set my expectations relative to your perfect life. Yeah. If my life isn't perfect, if I'm dealing with these anxieties and insecurities, you, you look like you don't have them. So therefore, I'm the faulty one. Once you realize that everyone – Everyone has demons. Every single person in the world is going through some problems. It makes you feel better about your own. And like the misery loves company idea. And I think that has a big impact on your expectations. And even for like ordinary life, I remember taking a flight a couple of years ago and it was delayed as a lot of flights are. And there was this guy waiting at the gate wearing a pinstripe suit, which says something about a person right there if he's wearing a mm-hmm. pinstripe suit. And he just lost his mind at the ticket agent because the flight was delayed. And I remember thinking like, how can you go through life without capacity to deal with a petty annoyance? And, like, if your expectations are so high that any slightest little setback is gonna push you over the edge, of course you're miserable. Of course you're gonna lose your mind at the ticket agents. But it's like having just some capacity to deal with inefficiency and a broken chair and whatever it might be, is absolutely mandatory to keeping your sanity over time. Just like a 20% allowance for bullshit in your life yeah. is really really important. Yeah. And if you don't have that, any slight setback is going to is is going to drive you crazy.
0: Well, like I said Morgan, the the book, it just it really calmed me down. And I Good. I want to say that for anyone listening who might need you're you're worried about the world, you're worried about what's happening and you need some not just reassurance but like data and fact-based evidence of why your worry is not something that needs to hold this much space in your life. So will you tell the audience where they can find you online, where they can find the book, like give them all the
1: details. Uh, so the book is called Same as Ever, A Guide to What Never Changes. My first book was The Psychology of Money. Which
0: is fantastic. And Thank everyone you. should also read that. That's literally why I wanted you to come on the show. Thank you.
1: And I spent a lot of my time on Twitter, it's the 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 drug of choice in social media. More, my, my, my screen name is uh, Morgan Housel, my, my first and last name.
0: Cool. Thank you so much for coming. This Thanks, has Rachel. Been awesome. Appreciate you having me. The Rachel Hollis podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix.
1: Ask your doctor about Cosentix.
0: It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now, March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org.